Morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week we are going to chat about what is called in the Torah Parashat Pinchas, the section of Torah known as Pinchas. It is one of just a few Torah portions named after an individual. It is found in beginning in Numbers 25.10, continuing through chapter 30 of Numbers. In the Torah portion, God says to Moses, The priest Pinchas turned my anger away from the son of Israel by bringing my rights to bear in their midst. Therefore, I shall give to him my covenant of peace and everlasting priesthood. It's not clear in the Torah portion what that means. Perhaps we'll speak to our guest about that. After the death of the idolatrous Israelites, God told Moses to take account of the entire community of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward, according to their father's houses. Each of the families was counted and numbered as God has commanded. After the people were counted, God told Moses, the land shall be apportioned as an inheritance according to the number of names. To the numerous you shall give a large inheritance, and to the few a small inheritance. By lot this land shall be divided, and it shall be received as a possession according to the names and tribes of the fathers. Now, during this counting and apportionment of land, the five daughters of Zelipathod came near and placed themselves before Moses and Eleazar the priest and the entire community in the entrance of the tent of appointed meeting. They said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company that banded together against God. He was not among Korok's allies, but he died because of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father disappear from the midst of his family just because he did not have a son? Please give us a possession, too. Moses brought their legitimate claim before God, and God responded, The daughters of Zelithaphad speak justly. Certainly shall give them, according to the legal rights of males, a hereditary possession, and you shall cause their father's inheritance to pass to them. And to the sons of Israel you shall say, If a man dies and he has no son, you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. He has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to his kin that is closest to him from among his family. This shall remain for Israel as a legal norm. God then said to Moses, Go to the mountain of transitions and look at the land that I have given to the sons of Israel. 
And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was gathered. For you acted against my words in the wilderness of Zin. God responded to Moses saying, let God appoint a man over the community who will lead them so that the community of God shall not be like sheep who have no shepherd. And God said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man to whom there is a spirit. Lean your hand upon him and represent him to Eleazar the priest and to the entire community and charge him before their eyes. Moses did with Joshua as God commanded. And the Torah portion ends with once again a restatement of the sacred times. God spoke to Moses and commanded him to have the sons of Israel bring offerings to God in each season of appointed meeting. Fire offerings, homage offerings, and ascent offerings are noted for each of the festivals. Passover, the Sabbath, the new moon, the festival of weeks, the Day of Atonement. Each offering, whether of animal sacrifice, flower, incense, libations, or human rest, is made to express compliance to God. Moses explained these exact offerings to the children of Israel according to everything that God had commanded Moses. With me this week to discuss Parashat Pinchas is Rabbi Dan Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa, Canada. Hi, Rabbi Garden. It's a pleasure to join you again. Well, thank you. Um, this week we want to talk about uh, Parashat Pinchas, and in particular... We're going to chat about a very interesting episode known as the Daughters of Zalifatat. Am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know if there's uh, one, one right, but that, that I, I do the same way. Okay, good. And um, in my introduction, I explained to our listeners that this was... Uh, Seemingly, um, a question of faith that um, God had commanded Moses to ensure that property was um, uh, appropriately passed from one generation to another, but only to the male progeny and that the daughters of Zelifahad um, came to Moses and said, well, our dad is dead, and he had no sons. Does that mean we are landless and his memory is forgotten? I think that's... Um, uh, do you want to add anything to that retelling for the moment? Uh, look, I think that's a fair, uh, a fair telling of the story. And, and I would add... But this actually is one of my favorite stories in, in the Torah. It's one of our less known narratives, and yet the theme is so um, is so pressing and speaks to today um, in terms of when we witness a wrong, when we experience a wrong, um, how do we speak up? How do we even speak up to the eternal to um, to make sure to rectify that injustice and to walk a path that is more fair? So you'd like our listeners 
to reformulate their understanding of this as not simply a um, conversation about inheritance, but something with much griefer, gr deeper spiritual meaning. And so why don't you spend a few moments chatting to our listeners about that? Sure. So look, as you share, um, uh, at uh, reading the text literally, this text is about inheritance. And if we're um, looking at this text with an eye toward the ancient Near East, um, we recognize that this would have been the norm. The land was exclusively inherited um, through the male line. But if a man died without male heirs, what would happen? The solution in the Torah is we could go. Uh, we could talk about. <laughs> it, it, um, we could certainly talk about a lot. Was for the brother to marry uh, the widow and therefore produce um, a male lineage to get around um, the struggle of not having male heirs. That's another topic for us to talk about. <laughs> so I'll leave that for another for day. our listeners, just to remind them, Rabbi Michael Berg is referring to what's known as Leverite marriage. That um, a brother, that uh, a husband who dies without progeny, his uh, brother is required to take his place um, in order to produce progeny to ensure that land remained with the household. But that's not our topic for this morning. As the rabbi suggested, it is a topic for another morning and another Torah portion. That, that would be a great conversation. But let's focus <laughs> in on the, um, on, on the topic being, what do you do? Um, if uh, uh, a man dies without leaving male heirs, here we have this, uh, this narrative that describes five daughters, these daughters of the Lachad, who rightfully so witness that this is not right, that, uh, that they can't um, receive the inheritance um, that they deserve. And you are correct that I would like to take this more general um, in terms of what do we do when there's a normative practice but isn't fair. And sometimes these normative practices, and we could list a host of them across history, um, become so ingrained that we typically forget um, how they can be cruel, um, how they could be painful, how there can be another way. So that's why I love this Torah portion, because it really pushes us to recognize that sometimes we need to push boundaries and go beyond the norm, um, and there are ways to do so in a productive, strategic, um, healthy way in order to find a solution. So just to um, introduce a couple questions, this week's short sure. portion asks us, where do women fit in? Because certainly, as described in the text, women are, are perceived to be in a secondary role, and certainly we can, uh, we, we can share, but that's not right. And it's unjust to leave them with no right. Um, it's unjust to be in any scenario where all of us don't have um, equal rights. Another question, what are we to do when the status quo is not fair? And lastly, I would say, do we accept a partial victory? As in, when the solution that is presented to us only partially addresses the difficulties, what are we to do? And just to answer these questions, and then I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, to so to look a little further, so first of all, this text highlights that we are all created equal and that each of us holds a spark of the divine 
and that all of us are precious and worthy. Alas, this is one of only very few texts in the Torah that highlights the rights of women. And so we're called, as we read this text, to hold it up and to honor the message. And we can also expand this text, not just to women's rights, but in a host of areas. I love to point out that as we look at what did the women do with their grievance, they went right to God, and God affirms this message of justice and inclusivity. Secondly, we don't accept something just because it's the norm. As I mentioned, we can think of lots of examples where the norm is cruel, inappropriate, and unjust. What do we do in these scenarios? It's as we encounter such unfairness that we speak up. I sometimes refer to this as righteous anger, because societally, we tend to avoid things that make us angry. This type of anger is really important for us to feel and for us to use to inspire us, because if as we get in touch with this type of anger and as we use it to protest and demonstrate, it's a way for us to make positive change. And lastly, as I suggested, I struggle with this text as much as I, uh, I eagerly um, look forward to reading it, because as we look at the change that is, uh, that is promoted, it's certainly not complete. But women are only deemed able to inherit if there are no men. It was similarly unjust to give a greater share to the oldest sibling. Certainly with our modern lens, these are not how we guide our inheritance. But again, if we're looking at this more generally, it's important for us to recognize that sometimes change is incremental, incremental and it's important for us to be patient. I, for one, recognize, even as I can be really impatient about making our world a more just and compassionate place, I also recognize that this kind of transformation doesn't open, happen overnight, and that incremental change can be welcomed, because it certainly pushes us in the right direction. And we're reminded, though, that we don't give up. It's that as we have a partial victory, we continue to pursue, pursue forward, we recognize that there are new challenges that demand our attention, and we continue in this direction of making sure that our society reflects inclusivity, compassion, and fairness. Well, you've made a very uh, powerful case for the importance of the story and the variety of messages that the story uh, conveys. But I'd like to spend a few moments with the time that's available to us unpacking it a bit more carefully, if you don't mind, and ask yourself and ask you to try and help our readers understand why you think the Torah um, included such a story as this. Um, you may want to explain to the listeners how you understand the authorship of Torah, but um, regardless of whether you think it's divinely crafted or divinely inspired, why do you think this story, which seems to um, be outside the norm of the biblical epic and its relationship to women, is there? Um, that's a really important question, and um, and certainly it speaks to um, how I and how we understand um, understand the role of Torah. 
um, and understand the, the role that God plays um, in our world. I love that the Torah is not clean. In fact, saying that... It's uh, in not, a, in I'm a, sorry. It's not clean. In fact, I'll even say I, I love that the stories within the Torah are messy. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, we're not called to simply accept blindly. Rather, we're called to struggle with the words within, um, and we're called to, to really pursue um, what's going on here. Um, and we're also called to recognize that, uh, that God's self um, is open to conversation, um, recognizing that, that sometimes norms or, 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 or practices that for a host of reasons might be set out one way, but there's place there to, um, to converse um, in order to find, I would even say, a better pathway. Um, the legendary, or maybe I should say the most famous example of this, uh, goes back to Abraham, who argued with God, who longed to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, because what they were doing was not right. And Abraham took on God, and Abraham said, you can't do that, God. Because to, swipe, to, to, to sweep away an entire people, you would sweep away the good with the bad, and you can't punish the righteous for the misdeeds of the cruel. And I share that story because actually Abraham was very successful in arguing with God. And in fact, they would come to a type of compromise where God promised not to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah um, as long as one can find ten righteous people in the land. And what we witness there with both of these stories is that to quarrel with God, to open our eyes even wider, to recognize that sometimes our initial pathway is not just, and as humanity we can learn from where we make mistakes and we can find a better way forward. So, if I understand correctly, you're wanting our listeners to see the story of Zelithahad's daughters in the same context that they see Abraham arguing with God at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that uh, both stories are intended to convey to the reader um, an interesting partnership between the deity and uh, the individuals. In one case, it's Abraham, the appointed uh, founder of the people of Israel, but in the second case, it's uh, individuals who have been uh, marginalized by circumstances, and I guess you're suggesting that the message for us is that all should have access to argue with God about injustice. If I was taking that further, I, I, I would say that, that how the, the, the pathway um, to making sure that we honor um, each and every voice uh, within our community, and I'm including God in, in, that, um, in that collective, um, is when we engage in healthy conversation and have the ability to listen to one another, and even recognize when, um, when our inadvertent actions um, might be hurtful, um, because we can, find, uh, we can find a better pathway together. And I think it's beautiful here that the daughters of the Lachnathad 
um, were able to converse with God um, through Moses and able to point out the deep pain that uh, they felt by being left out. And I often find in cases of injustice, in cases where norms um, alienate uh, peoples within, because people don't understand the, um, the sensitivities and the vulnerabilities and the pain that is felt. And when we connect in relationship, and when we're able to truly listen and to be open to the concerns and the needs of the other, that is when we're able to find a pathway um, as one, and when we're able to find uh, a truly um, inclusive uh, road for us to walk um, that addresses, uh, that, that, that honors the light that we carry, rather than um, taking away. So, you know, I'm always struck when um, visitors to our show are able to find such powerful spiritual messages in the text, especially in stories that on the surface seem to be quite cut and dry. Um, it simply appears to be um, a uh, correction uh, regarding inheritance rights um, and not necessarily a uh, powerful empowerment of women on the surface, uh, especially since um, the mother of these daughters is not part of the narrative. But you've helped our listeners understand something much deeper that the Torah wants us to understand about uh, injustice and trying to write uh, injustice by searching out the highest source of authority and not being cowered by that authority. Um, it's a wonderful message. Uh, to take from this. I'm wondering if in the time that's available to us, I could ask you your thoughts about uh, one other uh, part of the Torah portion, and it's at the very beginning. Um, and it's one that I've often pondered on. Um, so if you'll indulge me for a moment, Rabbi, I want to ask you about the section in um, Numbers 25, um, verse uh, 12. For, leader, for, for our listeners, the text reads as possible. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by displaying among them his passion for me. So I did not wipe out the Israelite people in my passion. So say, therefore, I grant him my act, my pact of friendship. And I'm wondering how, over the course of your studies, you've come to understand this notion of pact of friendship or if you have some thoughts about it. Okay, so um, speaking quite candidly, that as much as I admire the Daughters of the Lakhapad in this Torah portion, I deeply struggle 
with the uh, pact of friendship and with the um, with the verses you just described. And actually, I could tie the two together in terms of how there's very different ways um, to object to that which we see. And the, the story of Pincha is one where he, with um, quite uh, with, with, with violent rage, uh, really fought back against that uh, which he witnessed. And God, in fact, rewarding that. Um, and rewarding uh, Pinchas for his um, uh, for his great um, adherence to uh, to that which is right. I'd actually like to tie the two together in that you know I spoke earlier on about how rage and about anger can can lead us to promote um, dialogue and conversation and and, and positive change. Um, and I think we can look to the daughters of Alakakot for doing so in, um, in a somewhat healthy way. I've consistently struggled with Pinchas and with this pact that, uh, that God offers him, um, and that in effect it appears to be rewarding violence. Um, so maybe and, that, and that's something that help our, me. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can help our listeners by um, sharing with them the full story of Pinchas in a few words. Um, so the story of Pinchas is one who uh, objected to the, uh, to the uh, Israelites who were um, engaging in practices with neighboring communities uh, that, were deemed, um, that were deemed offensive to God and against the ways of the Israelite community um, to the point where he um, fought back with, uh, with weapons um, to uh, to slaughter those in his uh, to those in his presence, um, would that be a fair summary? Would that be uh... yes? I think so. Without getting into <laughs> the bloody specifics, yes, I think so. <laughs> so I, I I shouldn't laugh because it's quite graphic and it's um, it's quite um, difficult to uh, difficult to read. Um, and again, where I struggle is is with this question about what do we do when we are offended. And so, uh, I mean, I guess it's coming out uh, in, in terms of how do I approach Torah, and I tend to more generalize um, in terms of bringing to today, um, you know, this question, what do we do when that which we witness um, is, uh, offends us deeply to the core? And what we witness with Pinchas is a sense of engaging in violent behavior um, to address uh, those struggles. What we witness with the Lafakad is an alternative um, it's to use um, our words and to really engage in almost judicial conversation um, in order to address uh, that which is wrong. We have two solutions before us, and maybe they're intentionally um, side by side in order for us to witness that there are a host of ways um, for us to struggle with, uh, with that which we see. And, you know, I shared earlier on that also perhaps there's not one right um, and that there are times where we need to be um, more decisive with our, uh, with our distaste, um, and other times where uh, we're called to be more, um, more um, focused with our words in order to encounter that which we struggle. Wow, what an interesting um, connection you've made, that uh, Pinchas acts in a way to rectify what he perceives as a wrong, in a quite violent manner and seems to be uh, rewarded by the deity 
And in the same Torah portion, uh, the five daughters um, act to rectify wrong in a very nonviolent way. Um, and both ways are uh, honored by God. Um, and so we're left with that wonderful uh, thought that Shneham um, Yachdav, both of them are acceptable as responses to injustice. Um, and I suppose then one could ask whether the later rabbis um, had a preference for the more violent approach or the nonviolent approach. But that perhaps is for another show. Uh, my guest this morning has been Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa, Canada. I want to thank him for his wonderful insights. Uh, for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good day. Yeah.